I'm David Smith, and you're listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. In this series, we'll be talking with researchers and educators who are working to understand how Christian faith affects teaching, learning, and the way we do education. How do we as parents manage or like, how do you intersect the kind of like the traditional pursuit of knowledge with what we as Christian educators, you know, there's also like the practice of faith. Like how do do those intersect? Can we make those intersect in this day and age? The the traditional pursuit of knowledge was very much about faith. It's it's a Mm -hmm. pretty recent idea that you can separate those things that that's the newfangled move. So Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes we've got such short historical memories that we talk as if if we if, if we sort of come with a with a, you know, a faith perspective on education, like we're kind of adding something to education from the outside. It, it's like trying to talk about education as if it didn't grow out of a faith perspective is the new weird idea that, that's, that's just, just sort of very historically recent. Mm. Um, and I think that was the thing that became clear to me very early in my own teaching career was that it wasn't a question of whether you brought faith into the classroom from the outside somehow. It was that, like I said, every classroom is shaped by somebody's faith. Mm-hmm by somebody's vision of what it means to interact together, what it means to become a better person, what it means to be well-trained, what it means to make progress, what it means to see the world the right way, right? Somebody's faith is shaping all of that, right? And if it's, if it's not yours or mine, it's somebody else's, right? And, and so the question is not, should you bring your faith into the classroom? It's whose faith is shaping this classroom? Mm-hmm. And I think if, you know, as a parent, any school you interact with, I mean, yes, you might want to tell them about their facilities and, you know, whether their students get into college and yeah, so that's, that's all relevant, right? But if they can't give you a compelling account of the vision that actually frames their learning and of what kind of human beings they're hoping students will grow into through the learning they provide, then you should probably be a little wary of that school because it's not being thoroughly thoughtful about what it's doing. And, and it's... Um, you know, that, that should be articulable, right? I mean, all kinds of schools, whether they're Christian schools or public schools or whoever, mm-hmm. should be able to say, this is, this is what we're trying to achieve and this is how we shape learning to try to move in that direction, not just in terms of destinations, but in terms of growth, in terms of how we're trying to change. Yes. Yeah, and I would I just really echo that. I think um, having moved into public education where, you know, there was this, I mean, we had always been taught in Christian schools, that in public education, you know, people didn't think about those things. Well, you know what, that's not completely true, although there was a real desire or or an overarching idea that neutrality was possible, right? But that's changing. That's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, not, let's not think that that's what happens in public schools. That doesn't happen in public schools. Uh, you know what, there is a sense that neutrality is not possible, right? And so um, one of the joys I have of teaching in a, in a public setting is to introduce, reintroduce people to the reality that their values shape who they are and what they do. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you asked, you know, how does the pursuit of knowledge and the practice of faith intersect? Well, you know what? Everybody Everybody needs to have an understanding of the foundation of their world. And I think whether we're in Christian context or or non-Christian context, I think that we can suffer from trying to please everybody 
and not being grounded enough in what we believe. So one of the exercises I have my students go through, my my pre-service education students, is I have them make a pair of glasses, right? And I think this came in a lot of ways through my early education about what lenses do you see the world at? You know, are you wearing God's lenses, that kind of thing. And I, and I adapted that um, for my students who don't necessarily ascribe to a certain faith, or they do, right? And I just asked them to create a pair of glasses where they write on the outside, you know, characteristics about who they are, mm-hmm. right? And then on the inside, I have them write characteristics about what are the big groups that they are born into, like, you know, their heritage, their, you know, their skin color, their faith, um, um, you know, their gender, their sexual identity, all of those kinds of things. So we talk about them being on the inside of our frames, because oftentimes, you know, we, we don't make those explicit all the time. The stuff on the outside is unique to me. You know what, I'm the fifth child in my family, and, you know, so on and so forth. I have two children, and I like gardening and all that kind of stuff. So that's on the outside. And then I say to them, I say, Okay, now put those glasses on. How you, the glasses that you wear, shape how you think about knowledge, about the world, and it's going to be different than the person sitting, you know, next to you, right? And it's going to be different for each of the children coming into your classrooms as a teacher. So how do you understand the the glasses that somebody else is wearing? Or how do you live respectfully with somebody who's wearing a very different set of lenses than you are. So, um, you know, one of the things that that, um, I've been very thankful for in terms of restorative justice education, uh, which is about moving schools from being rule-based to relationship-based cultures, is the idea that values guide our interaction. And so we have these circle dialogues. So my dream is that we will no longer see classrooms that are set up with desks and rows or, you know, in groups, but that we have flexible furniture. And maybe in your school, you have that, right? But where where very quickly students can come together in a circle, whether that be a whole, whole class or a small group. And so a circle dialogue um, has some very specific guidelines, but at the at the root of what goes on in a circle dialogue is a belief. And this is the belief that all people are worthy and all people are interconnected. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's a very scriptural way of understanding who I am as a child of God. But you know what? It's what every human being desires, because I think that's how God exists in us. And, you know, um, when I can introduce that to my students, regardless of their faith commitment, we tap into something that's common. And then we can have a circle dialogue. So there's values that come out of that and so on. So we talk about values. What are your values? How do those values, how are those values going to guide our learning together? And there's a, there's a lot more to that, but at the same time, it's very simple, right? Mm -hmm. Can we commit to believing that everybody here is worthy and interconnected? And can we work out some values of respect and dignity and, 
you know, mutual concern and so on, right? So I would say, um, you know, uh, the pursuit of knowledge and the practice of our faith, they, they, there's no way to separate them. It's an impossibility. So how is technology impacting that? David, I know that some of your latest work is around technology in the classroom, right? So how is that impacting or like in your research, has it impacted this whole concept? Well, it's having a very complex impact. And, and um, you know, I was part of a team of researchers. We spent several years going into a cluster of schools and uh, observing classes, doing surveys, interviewing parents and students and administrators, uh, studying school documents. At one point, I had 28,000 school documents on my hard drive and spent a year of my life reading and coding them and, uh, and doing case studies with individual teachers. So we tried just to take a very deep dive into a school system and how it was changing because it had adopted a laptop program and a tablet program and so on. And I can't really summarize in a few sentences all the changes because, like I say, it was very complex. There's a lot of things happening at once, and that's part of what, what makes it challenging. But in terms of the kinds of themes that we've been talking about so far, just sort of a few little snapshots here of things that we, that we saw in schools. So we heard parents in focus groups concerned about the potential risks if students were going to work with laptops and tablets, of students getting easier access to pornography, to violent material, to, to otherwise you know dangerous material on the internet. And... Um, you know, that, that's a legitimate concern, but what we saw more often in the classroom was things like uh, the student who told us that it was great that we, they could learn with laptops in Bible class because you could take notes faster, you could get through the work faster, and then when you were done, and while the teacher was just talking, you could go shopping. And this was the, uh, was the great thing about working with laptops was you could go shopping while the teacher was talking. And, and indeed, for a year, we sat, we sat at the back of classrooms and saw students, you know, flipping out of what they were meant to be working on. They were really good at task switching when the teacher walked by and just flipping over onto a, onto a shopping site and essentially coveting pretty pictures of things that they didn't have as an alternative to participating in what was going on around them. We also heard students wrestling with, with articulating how they really ought to behave with regard to the people around them while they're using devices. So, you know, students student saying in the same breath, you know, in the same paragraph, students saying, you know, if you're working with other people and you, and you go on your phone uh, and you're getting distracted and you're going on Facebook or something, that's really disrespectful uh, to the teacher or to the other people in your group. But I think you should have a right to do it and it's totally okay and it's not a problem. <laughs> and, and, you could hear students struggling to put these together, that we've got more than one value system going on in society around this, right? There's the story that says your device is your own little world and nobody should tell you what to do on it except you and nobody should intrude or, you know, when you're on your phone, you're in your own little space and it's your little space. And we've also got another value system that says when you're in a room with other people, you ought to be giving them a basic level of respect and, um, and eye contact and listening to what they have to say. And, and we could see students trying to put this together in the classroom and not quite being able to figure out how to square these different, these different stories about technology and, uh, and, again, figure out an ethic about, you know, you've got, you've got this device that lets you do all kinds of things, but there's other human beings there too, and starting to try to figure that out. And then to draw parents in here, we had, you know, one teacher told us a story about getting a, a message, an electronic message, I'm not sure whether it was a text or an email, at 3.05, saying, I'll be coming into school to pick up my daughter at 
and was was just kind of thinking aloud about the fact that, wow, this parent thinks that while I'm teaching the math class, I'm also checking my email just in case they sent me a message in the last 10 minutes. And in fact, as I, you know, going into schools with, with, with trainee teachers, I'm starting to see teachers doing this in classrooms, giving the students things to work on in groups for a few minutes and then going checking their email to see if anything came in. So to me, all three of these, right, shopping in class while the teacher's talking, trying to figure out whether I can be distracted without being dis disrespectful, sending messages and expecting the other person to get them within 10 minutes, all three of these are examples of us living with technology and failing to quite think through the impacts of our own choices on the other people with whom we share space, right? You know, the idea is that if I go shopping in class, that's nobody else, you know, doesn't affect the teacher, doesn't affect the other students looking over my shoulder. It's just, just me and my device, right? Or, or again, if I, if I dash off a message now, well, it's off, it's off my plate now, it's off my to-do list, right? Now it's, now it's in the teacher. And not thinking about the amount of pressure you're putting on other people, the amount of stress you're creating with other, for other people, the amount of distraction you're creating with other people, the amount of not feeling listened to that you're creating for other people. And so a challenge that just kept rearing its head was, was as these new devices come and with them new <sighs> unspoken rules, right, about how we behave with them in public, how do, you start, how do you start having a conversation about how to live together well with those devices, given the things that they do allow you to do? We saw lots of positive learning going on, good things. So, you know, we weren't just setting out to show that devices are bad. But at the same time, all of these poor choices and semi-articulate attempts to try to describe what was going on, where it was pretty clear that people were getting pulled in more than one direction. You know, the down drag from the individual me and my device paradigm, the... I should be able to do what I want paradigm, the I should get instant results paradigm, people should be answerable, the I shouldn't have to be always available paradigm, the I should make eye contact and listen to people paradigm. All these stories are going around, right? And we're trying to figure out what to do with our phones in the middle of all of that. So, and it, it, like if we as adults haven't gotten halfway towards figuring that out, it's, it's no wonder that students are sounding incoherent when we talk to them and they're trying to figure out how to navigate this environment uh, in class. Uh, so to me, this starts to bounce up to the whole community is how do you have a conversation as parents about what's it reasonable to expect from teachers, right? Is there a time in the evening after which you probably shouldn't send them a message and expect them to see it by the next day? Real simple things like that, right? What, what happens in the home with devices, right? And eye contact and listening um, and so on, you know, it sort of starts there. And then for teachers to get self-conscious about how they're articulating to students when we use devices and why and in whose presence. Some teachers were finding that a, a magical way to get rid of an awful lot of the distraction that was around devices in classrooms was just have more than one student to a device. And again, it's so ingrained into our use of small electronic devices that you're supposed to have your own. You're supposed to have one each, right? You have your own phone, you have your own tablet, you have your own laptop. If there are three of you around a laptop, one of you can't go off on Facebook. And, and suddenly that changed the whole dynamic. So again, working on things in a way that leveraged community, that leveraged relationships, was actually also really promising for learning, um, was actually creating more focus, more inquiry, more research, um, and so on. So yeah, just lots of things happening at once. And we're all trying to create new coherent stories around new sets of technological practices, and at least some of the time failing. I would just add to that. It's kind of hard to describe completely, but 
technology is with us and we, we need to learn how to use it. But because it's so pervasive, we also need to find ways to balance or to provide opportunities for children, youth, adults to experience what a good, solid, um, face-to-face dialogue is, right? And I think for myself, that is why I've really gravitated towards seeing how, uh, how circle dialogue, uh, restorative justice and education principles and practices can really make a difference. So I'll just describe one one um, practice that we do whenever we start a class. And remember that, and I know we're talking to high school audience, and I know this this uh, works well at high school, works well in kindergarten, grade one, and many of my students are just recently out of high school. And so I introduce them to something that's just called the check-in circle. And that is when we come to class, the very first thing we do is, and if it's a large class, we just stand around the perimeter of the class. We have a talking piece and that talking piece might be, you know, a rock or something that has value for the class in one way or another. It might just be a stick. I've got a whole shelf full of talking pieces here, as you can say, right? But then um, I just give them, you know, three basic guidelines to start off with. Um, One person talks at a time, and that's the person who's got the talking piece. Um, You can pass if you want to. So you don't have to say anything, or you can just hold the piece in silence. You can just pass it to the next person. And the last one is basically soft eyes turned to wonder. And that comes from Parker Palmer for people who know who Parker Palmer is. But that is basically that if I hear David say something that I think is really crazy, that instead of going, wow, David, that's really crazy. I would say, wow, I wonder what's happened for David that he would say that, right? So I wonder about what somebody has said in a very non-judgmental way. And then and then the, the check-in topic is usually very, very light. And then it can progress into some more uh, complicated topics. But it's something like, um, what's your favorite coffee shop order? Okay. Or what weather do you feel like today? Or if you were a color, what color are you? And so it's just a one word um, kind of response or a few words kind of response. And um, sometimes I would say, I would say, okay, if we were coming back after a weekend, what's on the top of your mind? Because as educator and parents, we know that our children are not going to school and just dropping everything that's happened for them. So the topic might simply be what's on the top of your mind. And I'll never forget the one time when we passed the talking piece and I had a a class of about 37 students. And um, one of my students got engaged on the weekend and she was so excited, right? And she shared that and everybody clapped and it was great. And then the talking piece, you know, about five or six students later, a student shared that one of their friends had been killed in a car accident. And, um, you know, people would go like, well, oh my goodness, what are you going to do, Dorothy? But the guidelines for the circle are that as the facilitator, I'm a participant. And it's the talking piece that guides the conversation, right? So 
when they had shared, then it just went to the next person until I got the talking piece back. And then I, I just would invite an open dialogue and I'd say, is there anybody who'd like to share something or respond to something that somebody else said? And there would be a bit. And, you know, in that case, because there was some heavy stuff that came out, students uh, responded. Right. But the beauty of what happened was nobody had their phones with them. Right. That's one of the guidelines. You have to leave your phones at the, but they don't want to. After a while, they don't want to take their phones because they are so focused on what their peers are saying. And, and afterwards, like I can go up to a couple of the students that I hear, you know, they may be struggling with something. But the beauty is, is that somebody else in the class will go up to the student who lost a friend or several students will, and others will go to the student who got engaged, right? And they will learn to support and respond to each other. And I don't have to carry that as the teacher, right? And so what I'm doing in that very simple process is a modeling of how do we listen to each other? How do we really listen? So then later, when they're working on assignments, you can use those, you, that becomes a, a touchstone for you. And you say, hey, you know, what were the guidelines we created as, as, a, as a group, right? And, you know, I have great, um, you know, feedback from students. And many students will say, oh, my goodness, you know, after about the third or fourth week when we're still doing check-in circles, they'll go, do we have to do another check-in circle? And I just say, you know what, let's just do. And I, and I give it to them to start to facilitate. So they come up with the topic, they come up with the talking piece, and they facilitate. So, but the beauty is, is that, you know, by the end of the semester, they're all saying, the one thing I loved the most was the check-in circle. At first, here's one. I thought checking in every morning was going to be very time-consuming when I just wanted to reflect on how to teach social studies. But reflecting back on it now, I've learned a lot. I've learned about my peers, but also how to accept people's views. And rather than judging, I found myself wondering a lot about why they thought that way. And they go on. And, you know, I believe that this is a great way to use with students as it allows them to be themselves and express their views and beliefs while their peers look at them with wondering eyes. And you know what? I've done this with kindergarten. I've done it with grade three, with grade six, with, with adults. You know, when they come for dinner, we do check-in circles, you know. And it's the most amazing thing that happens, right? We find out stuff about each other that we, we thought we, we knew everything. We know nothing about the other. So I think, you know, in, in balancing what David is saying is what you found in your research is that how do we in our classrooms and in our families create these spaces for relationship, not just a bunch of individuals together in relationship, but relationship as um, kind of an Ubuntu understanding of relationship. We understand each other through each other. I am not complete when I am in isolation. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And I think leveraging that, because I see this all the time in the classrooms, like the students, their best help on their homework problems is probably the other kid that understands yes. the homework problem in their class and they don't want to ask them. That's right. And I think it, part of it is because there is such this individualism that's happening within our, our learning communities that they don't have those relationships 
to have the safety to ask a question because they're not known and they're not allowing themselves to be known. This actually like leads, um, there was a question that was, and I'm just kind of cognizant of the time and I wanna also you know, honor the participants and the questions that they're asking. There was a question that was said that it seems that both of you have experienced God, you pending your own goals of education away from a self-focused approach. Can you speak to the fact that education seems to be trending toward isolation and performance, which is quite different. So I think that you might've touched upon this a little bit, but if you could just respond to that, um, maybe a little bit more directly. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know to what degree it's true to say that at any moment in time, that education as a whole is trending because education is made up of lots of different schools mm -hmm. and lots of different teachers and lots of different students in lots of different cultural settings. And that's even just within within North America before you start you start looking further. So I think education is often trending in multiple directions simultaneously. Um, and, um, and that can even happen within the same school. So, you know, we, we, we found, you know, with surveys around the technology, we found that students telling us that the same devices were encouraging them to understand things better because they could go beyond their teacher's explanation and search online. And that it was encouraging them to skim over stuff without really understanding it because they could look up the answer and copy and paste it into their worksheet. So, you know, you've, you've got like two things happening simultaneously, right? And, and this is part of what, what, what makes it complex. So I'd rather say there are forces in education that push us towards isolation mm -hmm. and performativity um, and task completion. And the idea that it's really just all about checking things off and getting more things done than the next person. And that that's fairly dehumanizing, counterproductive, doesn't lead to good learning, and ironically doesn't actually give you the kind of personal qualities that are really likely to predict success in uh, in later life. Um, and uh, and there are other things within education, you know, including Dorothy's work, for example, that are pushing us towards, you know, how do how do we how do we actually connect with each other? How do we interact in different ways in the classroom? How do we change classroom furniture? Um, you know, how do we how do we find new ways of engaging students with their wider communities? All of that's happening too. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, there's there's always sort of more than one eddy in the in in the river, if you like, if if that's a, if that works as an image. And and the question becomes then how do you how do you reinforce the constructive things that are happening and resist the less constructive things that are happening, mm -hmm. um, and 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 not just be kind of carried downstream by this sort of unexamined sense of we have to we have to it's urgent it's urgent, but to actually sort of slow down and think what. It, what are the things that are actually touching our hopes and how do we reinforce those? How do we praise them? How do we encourage them? How do we drop a word in the right place? I, I, I would echo everything that David has just said is that, yeah, there are things that are trending and isolation is, is a big uh, issue because as you said, Jean, there is an emphasis on individualism. And though I think that there's an understanding that there's something not quite right there, we in North America live in a very liberal individualistic world. And so I think we do need to understand that the dominant uh, trajectory of our society has been one of individualism and and I think we're living at a time when we really need to uh, resist that. But I, I've, I've smiled a number of times about, David, your story about the students shopping online. I, I think it's the epitome of our um, culture, which basically says we are valuable if we are contributing economically to our society, right? That is 
I mean, from the from a very young age, you know, if you ask young children, why do you go to school? And they say, because I need to have a good job. Like, of course, not all of them will. But what, why, why are our children in school? Do they think they're in school because they need to get a good job? And then what about, what about the fact that they're not going to be an adult in a job for at least, you know, 15, 20 years from the time they enter kindergarten. So for 15 or 20 years, are they going to be thinking, and, and many children do, I'm here because I need a good job, right? But that's the epitome of individualism. It's the epitome of capitalism and commodification of who we are as human beings. And as David, you said, a real dehumanizing. So in spite of the fact that I think there are lots of things trending, I have to say that the whole restorative justice cultural shift into a, a, a deeper relationship, it feels extremely countercultural. Mm-hmm. And it is very challenging. Mm-hmm. In spite of everything that people experience and say, this is amazing. And here in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's actually in our um, you know, uh, education minister's mandate letter, finally, which is a great thing to, to celebrate. But the reality is, is our system is not set up to be relational. Our system is set up to feed an economy. Hmm. And in Christian education, I would hope that that isn't the case, that we, that we answer to a higher, a higher power, a, a, a different way of thinking about the world. But let's, let's face it, as a Christian, we are, we are living in a culture that we can't resist completely. You know, what kind of car do I drive? What kind of clothes do I wear? What kind of house do I live in? Yeah. You know? I think that must, that's like one of those unseen or like passed over influences of technology, right? Like you were saying before, David, it's like, we worry about pornography, we worry about violence, but are we worrying about consumerism and worldliness and, mm-hmm. and like, like that kind of value shaping us, you know, <laughs> within, I guess, within the classroom context is what's happening in some of your research. Well, um, I mean, this takes me back to where I started in that, you know, one, one of the one of the widely used beginning textbooks that I've that I've seen for, for teaching German. It's just a first year introduction to German textbook. And so it's not something that most people would 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 consider as a place where we should be talking about faith and education or um, or ethics or whatever. It's just it's just the beginning German class. Right? And uh, the, the first two chapters are called who I am and what I do possessions and pleasures. Mm. Um, so the story that starts this textbook is, is, you know, how do I know who I am? How do I, well, I'm defined by what I do, what I like, and what I own. Mm-hmm. Who I am and what I do, possessions and pleasures. So, you know, th- this kind of, there are value systems sometimes built into our educational materials that we really ought to be questioning, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, first of all, if you want to learn somebody else's language, should the first chapter be about me? Should it be about the things I like buying and the things that I liked on Facebook, right? Or, or are there other things that I might want to say about me? And, uh, and, and if I come out of that language course knowing all the words for buying things, but none of the words for forgiving someone, then, then what kind of language course it was? So, so again, we can talk about trends in a very big way, but we've, we, we also have to learn to pay attention to the way our specific practices, right? The specific choices we make, what we talk about, what stories we tell, what comes first and what comes second and what comes last? 
how that how that carries these 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 value systems. There's another question. I don't mean to cut that one. There is one question. I believe it's probably connected to the comment about the task orientation that comes with technology. It was a question that came in as how do parents and teachers best discern the natural gifts and learning styles of children so they can cultivate that curiosity and that eagerness mm -hmm. to learn? Do you have a response? To yeah, that? we have to be a little bit cautious about this because, you know, the last decade, 15 years or so, things like, you know, learning styles on the one hand, multiple intelligences is another phrase that gets used, have been very popular. Big industries have built, been built around them. People have gone to try to research them and there basically isn't any evidence that they're really a thing. So, um, or, the, or that trying to teach to a student's specific learning style actually, you know, causes better learning outcomes. So, you know, the evidence has been a bit thin that, um, that, that we should be putting too many eggs in, in sort of learning styles type baskets. But certainly, um, you know, students have gifts, students have personality differences, um, students have different ways of thinking, um, different ways of processing, different experiences. And how do you find that out about any human being? Well, you, you interact with them, you listen to them, mm -hmm. you do things with them. Mm -hmm. like you, you, how would you find that out about your next door neighbor? You, you probably wouldn't go and ask if you could weigh them um, or, or, or go sort of, you know, give them a questionnaire to fill out um, as a precondition for then interacting with them. Yeah. You would invite them out to a ball game. You would, you would do yeah. some gardening with them. You would, you would find some context in which you could interact, in which you could start listening, in which you could start finding out what's going on. And uh, I know for me from early in my teaching career, that's one of the things that sometimes hard in classrooms because as a teacher you're tracking a lot of things when you're running a classroom there's a lot of things happening at once way more than you can actually effectively pay attention to and it's easy to float above what's happening and not create enough spaces for listening for seeing for hearing what's going on with students so you have to be quite intentional about that mm -hmm. try to create strategies where you've got chance to to hear what students are articulating yeah um, yeah and I, and I would say that has, for me, that has been the gift of um, challenging me to use circle dialogue because it requires that I am quiet mm -hmm. and that I listen. And, and so when we, so this idea of cultivating inquiry, like how do we encourage children to ask and youth to ask and really wonder, well, Again, you know, if I use a circle approach that the students are used to because of the check-in circle idea, and I say, let's have a check-in circle right now. And, you know, we've been talking about, you know, pick any topic in, you know, if, if it's language, right? So learning German, I'll pick up on what David is saying and say, well, well, tell me, let's just do a quick round and everybody say, what is it that you really love to learn how to express in German that you haven't had, had a chance to do yet, right? Go around and as, as the educator, you, you pay attention to this and you go, oh my goodness, all of the things they want to talk about, I'm not dealing with it. So, so what's happening then is you're getting that feedback and that can be in any subject area and, and, and you're, you're going like, oh, this is what the students are interested in. And when you can show them that you're responding to what they said, then they're going to start to inquire more and more and go deeper and deeper. And the same thing can happen with, you know, if you're dealing with a particular topic and if you're in math, right, like in, in a math course and, 
And you can do this in small groups or the whole groups. You, you check out or you check up in the middle and you say, okay, what's one thing about this concept that you're working with that's really difficult for you? Or what's one thing that you, that you don't find difficult at all? And, and so students hear this from each other and they start to realize, oh, I'm not the only one who's got problems with this, or I'm not the only one who finds this too easy. Or a, a circle that, that is simply, you know, let's brainstorm for ways in which this math concept is part of our life in the classroom, you know, or part of your life at home. So you start to really open up opportunities for the students to wonder. But it requires of me as an educator to let go of some of my control and to realize that I don't know what it is that the students need to know or want to know, right? And that's a challenge. But that's where the talking piece, it actually, it actually monitors the dialogue. And unless something terrible is happening, I also cannot say anything until it comes back to me, mm-hmm. right? And that's, and that's a bit of a scary thing, but it's also a beautiful thing because I think that, that we begin to hear we begin to hear what's inside the hearts of our youth. Yeah. yeah. Um, this has just been such a rich, rich conversation. Thank you so much, David and Dorothy, for sharing your, your research and your work and your wisdom with all of us. I just know that all of us have certain nuggets that we have taken that we're just going to continue to, you know, think about, meditate on, just and hopefully be able to apply. I know that there was a question in there, Dorothy, that was specifically about wanting to do these talking circles within their family. We don't have time to necessarily get to that, but just know that that's touched a heart. Like they want to do that within their own family, right? And then and um, the educators that are on the line may be even wanting to start integrating that within their classroom mm-hmm. as well. And, just- I, and I would say that, you know, in terms of family, it, it really did change our family. Like, and, and we would sit down with the three or four of us and we would start it off, right? And then eventually we said, Anthony, it's your turn to facilitate tonight. And, and it was really fun to hear what he was going, what he did, right? What he was thinking. And yeah, it, it does. There is something really special about what it does to family. The only thing I would add, not from like, because I've researched it, I've just experienced it. If you're doing with teenagers, don't ask them if they want to do it because they're not going to say yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And let them experience it, right. and they're going to do it. So don't- and on that note, Jean, you have to ask yourself this question is, do you ever walk into a classroom and say, do you want to do this? Right, you wouldn't do, do, would you like to sit in rows today or would you like to sit in groups? We don't ask them that. We just do it, right? In the same way, you know what? We invite them into a circle and say, today we're starting this in the circle. Yeah. And that's the beautiful work that we're doing as educators as well as parents. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. Learn more at www.pedagogy.net.